I will show YouTube where I have made a home while preparing to bring justice. Then my club will break you. Isn't that reasonable? Your precious video platform faithfully accepted. We will need it. By the way, from yesterday's show, of all the things that we talked about, the comment section was all about Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat stealing souls. There you go. That's what got, we gained like a dozen Mug Club subscribers from that one reference. Okay, this is a special show. Uh, of course, Not Gay Jared producing the video as always. Send your comments on Twitter, Not Gay Jared, me at S. Crowder, at G. Morgan Jr. We fulfill our legal obligations to our own conclusions. We have to do the intro. This is a special episode. Uh, we've done this before with Patrick Moore, Dr. Patrick Moore, uh, of course, on the global warming issue, uh, mm -hmm. PhD in ecology. And now we've had this man on, but people have gotten very mad at us and threatened to unsubscribe if we have not had him back for a full, you know, serious, 45 minutes to an hour. Threats. That's legit. Uh, yeah, serious threats on the internet. So you can, by the way, right now there's a discount on a self-authoring program. If you type in Crowder, 20% discount at selfauthoring.com. Highly recommend it. Professor Jordan Peterson, how are you, sir? Good. I think that your people should unsubscribe if you don't talk to me for at least 45 minutes. Okay, yes. Well, <laughs> the thing is, we also never want to be uh, too presumptive in taking up... My, who could have been behind the yeah. threats? <laughs> yes. The man behind the curtain. I, I thought it was suspicious when every single YouTube commenter made me call him doctor. <laughs> doctor. Yeah. Well, come on there now. Um, okay, so Professor Peterson, uh, obviously you were back on Joe Rogan's show and, and you lit the internet ablaze. Um, we wanted to go to some questions from, from Twitter, uh, some of those common questions that we've had. Let me just kind of get one to, to, to start. First off, I think a lot of people, to, to, to set the context, are, are thrilled that someone like you is out there because there, there are a lot of commentators or there are a few comedians, very few comedians um, like myself who are more right of center. But in the world of academia and people who have actually taken a stand against leftist ideology, I should say, I don't want to label you right wing. Um, there are almost of people doing that for you. Yes, but I, I don't want to do, because I don't necessarily think of you that way, but you certainly are speaking out against the really the 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 ideology of progressivism on campus. Um, why haven't you been forced to resign yet? Because we have so many people <laughs> saying, gosh, I'm so glad he's out there, but I feel this guy's gonna get the, he's gonna get them up at Kane soon. Well, I think there's a bunch of reasons. I mean, first of all, the University of Toronto is actually a pretty good place, you know? I mean, mm. I've been there for 20 years, more than that, and I've been treated very well there. And um, it's actually 
all things considered, a rather conservative institution. I mean, it, it, there there are things going underneath on underneath the surface that are that's tilting it in some ways towards the social justice end of the spectrum. But that's like it is in the real world. I would say it's a pretty noisy minority. Yeah. Now, and so so there's that, and I'm I have been at least reasonably well regarded at the university. Like I'm very popular with the students. My my courses sure. are always very popular and. I think I'm very careful about what I say, you know. So I have all these all this information on YouTube, hundreds of hours of lectures that I've given to students and I mean people have gone over them I would say with with the equivalent of a fine-tooth comb and not found any oh it's a horrible mixed metaphor. They've gone over it with a fine-tooth comb and haven't found any smoking pistols. Yes. So <laughs> Yeah, they haven't found any smoking sparrows from the coal mine. People mess up their analogies all the time. That's like, yeah, I, I live with a French Canadian mom. She does it all the time. I can I can disseminate them. But I mean, after like the Duke scandal, where a professor was forced to resign, you see it all the time in the states. People, some in some cases, who seem very sensible. You know, I I, I just wonder sometimes if that's a concern. Um, obviously, coming from I think from sometimes people resign. They're, they're older people sometimes they resign and I think it's because they just had enough yeah you know and it's, it's quite overwhelming to have a lot of media attention both positive and hostile directed towards you and it's quite unsettling you know and so I think I, I have wondered myself though why people seem to resign so quickly and and to pull back so quickly I mean yeah I guess it's partly because it's not that much it's not that entertaining to be mobbed <laughs> and, and, and I mean it's 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 really becoming a concern in Canada too because sure. we had some all-out social justice warrior assaults on um, on some pretty mainstream famous journalists in Canada, famous and and not so famous in the last couple of weeks. And I've yeah. spoken to a number of Canadian journalists who are at the top of their profession, I would say, and they're definitely reporting the tendency to self-censor and a concern that if they say the wrong thing, and this last round was about cultural appropriation, that they're going to be targeted by the the internet mob, roughly speaking, and 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 be hung out to dry by their colleagues, for example. And so Well let me let me touch that because I think a lot of people aren't operating from necessarily this the same kind of knowledge base as you are. Explain for people you've talked a lot about this kind of classical Marxist theory which is shaped, ship shifted into shape shifted. I'm now I'm I'm the one with the, the mixed metaphors. It's shape shifted into. I mean, would we say that it's more so shape shifted into identity politics? Would we also say kind of classical Marxist theory is has shifted into postmodernism? I mean, a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with with these terms, but you know they're ubiquitous on campus. Yeah, well, there's a very good book by Stephen R. Hicks that I would recommend. I believe it's called Explaining Postmodernism. It's either that or Understanding Postmodernism. But it's definitely Stephen R. Hicks. And I would recommend that highly to any of your viewers, especially the first chapter, because it explains how that shape-shifting process occurred. And as far as I can tell, you know, by the late 60s, early 70s, the idea that the West was going to be overwhelmed by... Uh, a workers' rebellion and and move in a radically left direction that was dead in the water. And then, of course, all the horror stories started to emerge in an undeniable fashion about exactly how barbaric both Mao's China and and Stalin's USSR, not only Stalin, also Lenin, how barbaric those places really were. And it became very intellectually untenable to maintain a pure Marxist attitude in the face of of both of those things. Sure. Um, with the ri rapid rise of living standards for the working class people in, in, in Europe and, 
and in the West in general. And what happened, as far as I can tell, and this happened mostly in France and, and under, the, under the direction of the, the postmodernists like Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, among others, they, they just did a sleight of hand and they exchanged economics for power and they exchanged uh, economic oppression for identity politics oppression and just continued right along with the same yeah. uh, devastating, resentful, um, rigid, one-dimensional ideology that, that's now become, I would say, paramount, particularly in the humanities, um, in the administration as well, or often in the administration among the student activists, it's it's the dominant ideology, and it's it's really a toxic, horrible I think, ideology. I think it's. I'm so glad to hear you say that because we talked about you know before the election, for example, Bernie Sanders. Um, we just talked about this the other day, where HuffPost said socialism is cool again. <laughs> it's so, so hot right yeah, now. Yeah, so hot right now. Thanks, Bernie like Sanders. That was the actual headline. <laughs> By the way, bell bottoms. You know nothing of women's fashion. You're a horrible not gay man, Jared. Um, but it was if you said socialism with Barack Obama. You know, I was raised in Quebec, basically so. I said, well, you secretly mean the N-word. It's a racial pejorative. And then De Bernie Sanders said, no, no, it's democratic socialism. And I was always saying, listen, the, the, the two are inextricably tied, this idea of fiscal, like you're saying, economic authoritarianism to a degree. Um, it, you can't remove that from identity politics. And we had a lot of people during the election cycle who said, well, actually, I really like Bernie on economics, but uh, uh, I don't like that he appeases Black Lives Matter. Since the election, He's gone full bore socialism. Huffington Post doesn't even use democratic socialism anymore. It's it's right out there, plain in the open. It's valuable character and space. I, I think a lot of people have woken up to that, and and so I'm interested that that you would say, yeah, that transition occurred when economically it was no longer viable. It made that transition culturally, and it seems like recently, since the left is losing the culture, and you're brilliant on this, they try and uh, shoehorn economics back in there. Yeah, well, and I'm not so sure they're losing. You know, I mean. I don't believe that the radical leftist types, the professional protesters and so forth, are, are represent a very large proportion of the population, but the degree to which they're organized and effective can't be underestimated. And they've True. been, and I think a large part of that is because the intellectuals, let's say, who lead the activist movements have been subsidized both by, by private forces and also by public forces in the universities for 40 years. And we've raised generations of of youthful activists who've been who've been trained by people who, who who have the luxury, let's say, of doing nothing but pursuing their their radical their radical utopian dreams in yeah. their spare time and doing everything they can to push that forward. And uh, and it doesn't take that many people in a society to have a very powerful effect if they're well organized and and noisy and effective. And the and look, the look at Islamic terrorism; oh. it's a very very congruent. Right, right. Well, you know, and, and the majority of people generally also stay silent. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think part of the reason I've been left alone as well, and I should highlight this, is that I have received overwhelming public support. And it, it's not only from individuals, although that's been a tremendous uh, help, uh, all the people who wrote to the university and, and who signed petitions, but also the journalists in Canada swung to my side pretty quickly in November once they started looking into what I was saying. And and determining that I wasn't merely scaremongering and that I wasn't uninformed, that the reason that I was complaining about or criticizing, let's say, some of the legislative moves that Canada was making, I, I had my facts in order, and I do have my facts in order. And um, the, the bill that I was specifically ob objecting to, Bill C-16, C -16, is still, yeah. Yeah, it's still in front of the Senate, 
that's been interesting too. Can you explain that to the American audience who may not be aware of it? Now, for, I've told them for a long time, uh, a lot of people don't, you know, there's no constitution, not the same constitution in Europe, in Canada. Freedom of speech doesn't exactly exist there. So that's important, regardless of any other law being mm -hmm. put forward, to understand. And that's why I, I listen, I'm, I'm always concerned Hence for someone like you. Being prosecuted. Yeah, comedians <laughs> being put before human rights tribunals. But tell the American audience who might not be aware about, about Bill C 16. Well, Bill C-16 is a federal bill, and it purports to do nothing but add gender identity and gender expression to the list of categories against which you cannot discriminate in Canada. And it, it also um, it, it also alters the Canadian uh, criminal code to make discrimination and harassment under those grounds potential uh, potential grounds for being pursued uh, under the hate speech provisions. And hey, hate speech provisions are very dangerous in my estimation to begin with. Sure. The problem comes not so much with the precise way that the legislation is worded, but in the policy, the policies that have already been developed by places like the Ontario Human Rights Commission, within which that legislation will definitely be interpreted. And the federal Justice Department actually said as much, although they took the link off their website once that had been made public, which was a reprehensible act, it's really a, a scandalous act in my estimation. It's also a stupid act. Don't they know what these WikiLeaks people, don't they know that people just go in an internet time machine? It's like when HuffPo issues corrections and then removes the article, like, we can go back in time. Yeah, no, I don't think they knew that. And of course, people went back in time very rapidly and, and did precisely that and, and rescued it, which was Quick, really get your DeLorean. They're bullshitting again. <laughs> Yeah, right, right. Well, thank God for that. Thank God that the record is relatively permanent because, you know, that's at least one of the advantages of newspapers is they're not so easy to edit once they're published. Right. You know, and the net has, has that as both an advantage and a disadvantage. Anyways, I went and spoke in front of the Canadian Senate this week and um, outlined along with a lawyer who, who's, who's come to my aid, I suppose, but also to the aid of Canadians more generally, detailing out the reasons to assume that why you might assume that my interpretation of this particular legislation is actually accurate rather than merely um, bigoted or transphobic as as I you know constantly get referred to even though I've had plenty believe me I've had plenty of letters from trans people probably about one a week so far who are firmly supporting what I'm doing because they're not very happy that they've been made the newest poster boy or girl or or That's whatever population happy. should actually have them <laughs> one a week what, that sounds about right what, <laughs> One a week, that's about, you know, half the population. Yeah, that's half the transgender population. <laughs> that's the thing. There, are, there aren't that many transsexual people. And, and to get letters with that frequency um, helps me also put forward my claim that the activists who purport to speak for this community, and it's certainly not a community by any stretch of the imagination, because how could it be? Um, <laughs> but it's just like a community is a coherent group of people that are in constant communication that share an ethos and, and like... The mere fact that you happen to be transsexual doesn't automatically make you identical to all the other right. transsexuals who happen to be out there. There's as much variability in that population as there is in any population. Despite and, the sharing of fluids, correct. Well, <laughs> yeah. yes, precisely. I mean, but, the, you know, one of the things that was very striking about the Senate hearings was that the fact that they had done a very bad job of sampling the actual population of people they purport to be speaking for was immediately evident. And, and oddly enough, and this is this is how you know the end of, of time is coming, is that about 300,000 people have watched that Senate uh, hearing. And when 300,000 people watch something that happens in the Canadian Senate, you know that 
you know that the apocalypse is near because yeah. that just never happens. Revelation 17. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> People pay attention to the Canadian Senate. It's like, oh. And I looked and behold, yeah. a pale professor. <laughs> <laughs> and hell followed with him. And trannies. I believe it yeah. says that somewhere in the back. Um, so, so let me ask you this, because I think there is a really a, sort of a, a, a through line where you see with radical Islamic terrorism. Although I will say this, I, I, I don't think, I think we're at the point now where people are willing to say, all right, we don't just have a problem with Islamic terrorism. We have a problem with the ideology of, of Islam. Not just people who are terrorists. We're not saying all Muslims are terrorists, but the idea of Sharia law, the idea of the way you can treat women. And mutilating girls in, in Detroit. <laughs> in Detroit. Uh, this has changed quite a bit. And you've talked about this. You've talked about how um, uh, strength is the only sort of language that they, they, they understand, that they speak. Now, Dinesh D'Souza has talked about how you know, certain virtues were not virtues until modern Christendom. For example, mercy. It wasn't. Mercy was considered a weakness. How do we balance, obviously, as, as Christians in Western civilization, um, still upholding the values, the Judeo-Christian values, while still effectively, I hate to use the word eradicating, but certainly ridding ourselves of people within our society who want to cause us grave bodily harm. If you need me to restate the question, I can. I was trying to fit it all in there. Yeah, well, that's that's a hell of a question. You know, I, I, one of the things that I'm doing in Canada and, and we'll be doing more of is I'm going to start a series of dialogues with moderate Muslims in Canada and the U.S. and and or or ex-Muslims, but also moderate Muslims. The first person that I plan to interview is Ayan Herzi Ali, and I'm going to talk to her on June 1st. And then I have a number of other people who are interested in pursuing that dialogue. And, you know, I've heard different opinions on Sharia law, for example. Um, certainly, Herzi Ali is more of the opinion that the more toxic forms of totalitarian Sharia law are built right into Islam as a structure. But I've talked to other people, an imam in, in Winnipeg, for example, who seems to be a reasonable person, who's of the opinion that um, general democratic laws, like the ones that are characteristic of Canada and the U.S., can be regarded as Sharia as long as they uphold certain kinds of moral virtues. So, you know, it's like any religious structure is un unbelievably complicated, and people interpret it in a very large number of ways. And what I'm hoping is that there's there's grounds for a real discussion between people who are of the Islamic faith and people in the West so that we can find a way forward that, that will work out mutually because the alternative just seems to be too catastrophic to really, to really contemplate. But do no, we I'm think, for, on a pragmatic level, that m may be where we're headed? I mean, I'm not talking about moderate Muslims in Canada, but you know, you have people, you have hundreds of millions of people who believe in death for apostasy or blasphemy. I mean, it's just that what I talked about yesterday, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong here. I really am interested in your insight. I was saying never have we before have have we had a, a society that is so advanced technologically, uh, economically, I mean, as far as weaponry, like we have with Western civilization, who have kowtowed and acquiesced to someone uh, to such a regressive society. I mean, usually it used to be right, like, oh my gosh, we came up with this new way where we know we can win wars, and you take over everyone else's stuff. Now the only weapon, it seems, that these terrorists have, as you see after uh, the Manchester bombing, is guilt. And the social justice warrior sort of postmodernist who appease them, right? They feel guilty to, to speak out against Islamic That's really the only weapon they have that's effective. And, and as you said, I, I worry on that front, they might be winning more than losing. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, it's, I don't really know what to say about that. I mean, I think the I think that the more radical end of the Islamic spectrum is unbelievably good at manipulating the social, the strange social justice warrior affinity for, for, for 
the more radical ends of his Islamic thought. I think they're they're superb at doing that. They're superb tacticians. Sure. And and the, the question you're asking to some degree is, and and I suppose you might even think about this from a Christian perspective, is that what are the limits of mercy and tolerance? And that's a really complicated question. Um, um, do you tolerate intolerance? I mean, the, the radical left would say definitely not, because of course they're willing to shut down anyone who isn't who, who they regard as intolerant, and I don't know that to the an, the answer to that. I mean, the the answer that I've been putting forward, generally speaking, to the problem of the inevitability of human conflict, generally speaking, is for people to strengthen themselves as individuals. Because I think that as a global solution, it's kind of a low resolution solution. But you know, strong people make strong families, and strong families make strong communities, and strong communities make a society that's very difficult to to undermine or overthrow. And I, I think that's been one of the real strengths of the West because and it, the, it's partly reflected in the fact that we're not authoritarian. So for example, if you take out the president and even maybe if you take out the president and all of the Congress, American democracy would still survive because it's so well distributed mm -hmm. across the entire population in every sort of institution and even at a personal level that it's very difficult to eradicate. Very different than North Korea, for instance, which would probably crumble. If, yeah. well, if, well, that's exactly the problem. You know, people say, well, aren't aren't authoritarian dictatorships efficient? And the answer to that is, well, now and then they're efficient in single directions, but they have a hell of a time with power transitions. Right. And that's a major problem. Whereas in a democracy, you can basically cut off the head of the organism, which we do on a regular basis anyways, almost like practice. And the whole thing <laughs> keeps going without any problem at all. And yeah. it's a big deal for that. And but I do think that that the fact that that works is is partly a consequence of having, well, individuals who are actually citizens and, and yeah. who hold those values and in 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 their own psyche, so to speak, and they also act them out. And and they create strong families. You mentioned, you know, I mean, for a long time they were just sort of poo pooed when when sort of uh, Christian conservatives would say, well, listen, you know, there is an attack on the foundation of society, the family. Uh, and some of them were obviously fear-mongering, some of them went too far, but it certainly does seem, and it seems there, there's a weird intersect now where the Dawkins fans, sort of the Sam Harris listeners, the Joe Rogan podcast listeners, uh, the semi-former left-wing atheists have acknowledged there does seem to be an attack on the fundamental fabric of society. And a big part of that is with the sort of post-modern gender theory. I don't necessarily know how to, I don't know all the big words like you, Professor, yeah. but... Um, yeah. Do we think well, that well, the postmodernists, like they're, they've launched an all-out assault on the fundamental elements of of Western civilization? There's there's no doubt about that. All, all you have to do is read their websites. You know, the women's studies websites, for example, and much of the humanities is devoted to that because they truly regard the West as a, uh, well, I would say as the equivalent of the, of the of what the communists used to call the as the oppressive bourgeoisie. You know, the only reason the West is wealthy, it has nothing to do with our structures of government or anything like that. It's because we've raped the planet and every other civilization and society and, and stolen all their wealth and, and distributed to a very small number of people. And, and the thing is rotten right to the core. It's rotten because men dominated. It's rotten because it's predicated on the idea of logic and, and the logos, which is a really deep criticism. And, and it needs to be brought to its knees at every level of categorization, uh, perception. I mean, that's why they're so, uh, that, that's why the anti-unconscious bias training has become so popular because you can actually, that, that gives you the opportunity, at least in theory, to actually re-educate people out of their actual perceptions, not just their thoughts. 
Right. And so there's no reason to underestimate the seriousness of this assault in my estimation. Now, that doesn't mean that every person who's a university student who's sort of enamored of neo-Marxism and postmodernism is a deadly threat to Western civilization. But they're just annoying. You, yeah, well, and they're also <laughs> fragments. They're, they're fragments of an idea. Yeah. You know, but if you put enough fragments of an idea together, you get the whole idea acting. And that's exactly what's happening now. And you don't want to underestimate the power of ideas. Ideas yeah. are ideas move mountains. They move continents. And and this is a this is an idea that that has deep roots in the humanities and the universities. And it's extraordinarily toxic. Yeah. I, there isn't anything about it that I can think of that's good. It's it's all destructive. Strong and, words, yeah. strong. When he, when I don't know about you, but when Professor Peterson just said "brought to its knees" in every level, I had a mild erection. <laughs> Anyone else? It was it was. A, I got a chill like on the inside. Like, oh, intellectual <laughs> conversation. <laughs> all of a sudden, Stephen. Yeah, sorry, apologies. Um, no, yeah, I think because well, you have talked a lot of. Good talking to you. Got to throw some comedy and humor in there every once in a while. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, I do think that you know you talked about this quite a bit, and there are a lot of obviously other other uh, intellectuals who talk about this. How uh, you said at the center of Western civilization. So now we've just talked about Western civilization, sort of versus Marxism, and I think that's really not to simplify it. But I think that is kind of the, 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 the intellectual battle right now. You, you can disguise it any way you want. It's basically Western civilization, which is incompatible with Marxism, whether it's cultural Marxism, whether it's postmodernism, feminism, social justice warriorism, identity politics. It all stems from the same thing. We did a long video on Karl Marx. And actually, you, Naki, Jared, you even said, like, I, I, it just seems like everything now is being regurgitated going back to yeah. Marx and Lenin. Yeah. But you said Western civilization, and I don't want to misquote you, that at the center of it is truth that that is so fundamentally important. Um, explain spoken that. truth, and spoken truth specifically. Yeah, yes, okay. Yeah. And, and, and I would say also in honesty. I mean, in, in the Christian ethos, there's a tremendous emphasis as well on love. And, and I think what love is, is the essentially, is the it's something that truth is nested inside. And I think to love properly means that you, you address someone else in their best interests, you know, that, yes. that what you're trying to do is to work in their best interest and your best interest at the, at the same time. And that that's how you're guided. And mm -hmm. so you're guided towards the good instead of towards destruction. But the most effective tool to use in that battle, so to speak, is truth and specifically the spoken truth. And I'm doing a series on the Bible right now, you know, uh, on the psychological significance of the biblical stories. I've, I did the second lecture last night and that's been quite interesting. Uh, We've managed to sell out a 500-seat theater on for both lectures, which yeah. is pretty bloody remarkable. And about 200,000 people have watched the first one. But I'm trying to make a. I'm trying to go back to the to the dream in some sense that underlies Western civilization. And and part of that dream is that what what brings proper being into being out of chaos is the spoken truth. Yeah. And I think that is. I believe that that presupposition is at the cornerstone of Western civilization. And, and, and it, with, with its tremendous emphasis on the moral obligation of each individual and each citizen to speak the truth. I think that's a paramount, I think that's the paramount virtue. It's, it's the virtue that's given the power to generate chaos out of order at the beginning of time, essentially. And whether you believe that as a believer, like as a Christian believer, or whether you analyze that as an idea, I don't think it, in some sense, practically, it, 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 it's, it's less important. The practical differences between those two things are less important than you might think, because the core issue is whether or not you believe that the world is better served by spoken truth or by or by manipulating and and acting instrumentally 
for your own good. And, and well, that's very own... Christian-like. As much as people, you know, love, for God so loved the world is what we believe. And to love, like you said, one of the greatest acts of love is to speak truth, is to be honest. And we actually just talked about talked that last night. on last night's show. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll give you an analogy. A lot of people get mad when we're critical of Donald Trump because this is a more right-leaning show. I say, listen, it comes from the spirit of... I want this guy to do well. I want the country to do well. And so it would be unloving. It would be a disservice of me to him and to the country to not be critical where I feel it's necessary and honest. And it's the same thing in a marriage. Sometimes you, you never want to speak it out of malice, but truth is, is so much more important than sometimes compassion or validation when it's not congruent with truth. So they're not mutually exclusive, but they aren't always you know, in tandem. Well, it's often the case, too, that it isn't compassion, really, that's that's at stake. It's the desire to avoid conflict in the moment. Good point. And that is not the same as compassion, because true compassion has a, has a lengthier time frame. You know, if you're part of the reason that you discipline children, which, of course, often hurts their feelings and produces immediate conflict in the environment, is part of the reason that you discipline them. It should be the whole reason, really, is because you want to stop them from doing things that are impulsively pleasurable in the moment, but that are going to lead them into situations, social situations in particular, in the medium term and the long term, that are bad for them. Like, you don't want your child to be a spoiled brat with toys because then other kids won't play with him or her. And that's a catastrophe. Yeah. And so you want to discipline your children, which requires conflict, which requires speaking the truth about the situation, so that their their path through life is facilitated over the longest span of time and the, and the largest number of situations. And you're doing the same thing in a marriage if you care for each other, is that- mm -hmm. yeah, Lots of spanking. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to go into the details of your personal life, as far as I'm concerned. Well, actually, hold on, hold on, hold on, because Nagy Jared has a question here. He, was, he raised his hand. Well, I think what's, what you hear is so much of the combative answer to that is that there is no such thing as truth. Leftists will say and liberals will say that there truth is whatever you define it to be. Your truth, live, live your, your truth. truth. Do you think that's what they say? But the more I think about it, I don't know that they really believe that. I don't know that you can really arrive at that conclusion if you're thinking through anything logically. I think most people say you got a, a father who's gone off the deep end. You want to bring him back the truth. Do you really think someone could argue in that situation that no, him being drunk and being his family is his truth, do you that's mean, good? You're asking, do you think, I guess, Professor, I think what you're asking is, do you think that the left actually believes that truth is subjective, or do you think they just use it as an out, yes. logically? They, I think they tend to use it whenever it's convenient for their argument. I mean, I think the radical leftists, I mean, they don't even, as far as I can tell, they regard the idea of coherence, logical coherence, let's say, as part of the oppressive structure that they're trying to fight against. Right. So, so the, the 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 idea that they can say one thing at one moment and another thing at the other moment is perfectly fine as long as it serves whatever whatever it is they think they're serving. I mean, part of the criticism of the West is phallogocentric, which is Derrida's term, is that the very notion of logic itself is part of the 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 means by which the West obtained hegemony and men perpetrate their power. And so, yeah. Now, do they actually act that way? Well, you can't, because if you if you if you act incoherently enough, you bump into yourself. Right. You know, and and I think that's a hard thing for the for the more radical postmodernists to admit too, because they don't really like the idea that there's a real world. Now, there is mysteries about the real world. Its 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 nature is complex beyond our ability to understand, but that doesn't mean that 
any old interpretation will do. And, and this is where and this is worth talking about momentarily, I think, because I think this is the logical fallacy that lies at the root of the problems with postmodernism, is that the postmodernists are correct when they say that any situation or any text is amenable to an almost unlimited number of interpretations. So for example, even when you're looking at something that appears to be as simple as a single room, there's an infinite number of details that you could concentrate on, like the brick wall that's behind you is unbelievably complicated in its structure. And if you were an artist trying to paint that, like with photographic realism, you'd find out very rapidly that although you might perceive it as brown, there's a very large number of colors in that surface and a tremendous number of textures, and it's just insanely complicated. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of ways to look at the room and lots of ways to interpret it. And so the postmodernists kind of have, have taken that idea and then said, well, if there's an almost unlimited number of ways to look at almost everything, including texts and the world, then there's no right way of looking at it. Right. Mm. Okay, but that's where the problem starts, as far as I'm concerned, because the first part of that claim is correct, and the second part is incorrect. And the reason it's incorrect is because, because well, there's a bunch of reasons, but, but one of the reasons is, is that we're constrained by the necessity of surviving and also by the necessity of not suffering unduly, because people don't really like to suffer that much. Yeah. And so when, when you're interacting, when you're existing as yourself, and when you're in, interacting with other people, what starts to happen, and the world, what starts to happen is the number of interpretations that are going to serve any useful purpose, including the cessation of pain, start to become restricted very, very rapidly. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you're married, um, there's a lot of different ways you can plan your future, but that's limited by the fact that you have to plan it together. And so that's a huge limitation because that's you both have to agree. And then, of course, you're surrounded by each other's family, and they have to be in on it. And then there's laws regulating it. Mm -hmm. And then there's the necessity of actually getting enough to eat and, and maintaining a job and, and raising children properly. It's, so all these interpretations are constrained by biological necessity, which, of course, the postmodernists just dispense with because they always have enough to eat. <laughs> You're welcome, by the way. <laughs> it's exactly right. You know, if, if, if almost all of your fundamental needs are met with a minimum of effort, you can easily pretend that they don't exist. But that, that of course, <laughs> right. is complete rubbish. Yeah. So you're constrained by the fact that the world will treat you very harshly if you apply a careless set of interpretations to it. And then you have to interpret it in a way that works for you across time. Then you have to interpret it in a way that works for the people that you're in constant discussion with, and it, you know, and it has to be played out repeatedly across time in all sorts of different social circumstances. And so, you know, you could interpret Hamlet to to mean that you should uh, you should kill yourself and everyone around you. Well, you know, that's a possible interpretation, but I wouldn't say that it's a particularly productive interpretation. And so, yeah, or legal. The, yeah, not as metrically legal either. Well, that's it. Is that we built? There's another in, confine. We, we that's well, that's it. We've built in our bodies contain a lot of restrictions on what constitute acceptable interpretations. I mean, you could say, well, one interpretation of a red hot stove is that you can put your hand on it. Well, you can, but if you do put your hand on it, there's going to be the kinds of consequences that generally convince you not to do that a second time. And the patriarchy wanted it that way. Uh, Nakajir well, has a that, question. Well, that's the problem with this social constructionist viewpoint, is that 
it's, there's this idea that there is no real constraint on anything because it's all interpretation. And there's the idea that the social constraints are merely arbitrary. Yeah. And none of that's true. No. It's Piaget, the, the developmental psychologist Jean Piaget, did a good job of outlining this when he was talking about children's games. So here's a rule for a child's game. Children have to want to play it. So, and it's really, well, really, it's a really important constraint because yeah. you know that if you're an unpopular kid and you go on the playground, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to run roughshod over what the other kids want to do. You're going to say that it has to be your game and it has to be played your way. And all that's going to happen is the kids will close ranks against you and you'll be an outcast. That's what happens. And so even in the world of the child, you're required to act in a manner that makes you, at minimal, an acceptable playmate for other people. And that's really important. It's, it's the basis of adult socialization as well. I mean, look, what we're doing here is, I know it's a serious conversation, but there's a game-like element to it too, you know? I mean, sure. you have to want to do it voluntarily. We can leave in it with a bit of humor. I have to want to do it voluntarily. You have to have an audience. Yeah. You have to be technically proficient enough to manage it. I mean, there's a lot of constraints. Sure. And the, the postmodernists never recognize those as, as real because they don't really recognize anything as real. Well, and the problem is they try to put in new constraints, uh, for example, like you're talking about with, with Bill uh, C-16, on everyone else. Mm. In, other, in other words, say, well, yeah. we don't believe in these constraints, which happen to be biological, historical, logical, factual. So we're going to create these constraints basically on you so that you can't speak in a way that we don't like. Not good, Jared, you had a question. Yeah, how would you how would you uh, combat the argument, though, that progressives would say, well, sometimes a progress needs to take place in the face of social or historical constraints. There are times in history we can see like of slavery or things happen in the Middle Eastern cultures that that would be true. How do you, what kind of constraints navigate those situations and kind of dissect and weed out, okay, uh, transgender issues from, say, slavery, uh, slavery issues? What yeah, kind of... That's a good um, question. Guide yeah, that well, kind of progress. That is a good question. I mean, uh, it, for me, it's never been the transgender issue isn't the issue. You know, it, it's the side issue. It's like I don't. So, with regards to discrimination, let's say for me, that's a pretty straightforward issue. So, you, you got to look at the context within. The first thing I should say about that is that people need to be allowed to discriminate, and sure. that's something no one ever says. Discrimination is unbelievably important. The best example of that, and. And we're going to end. We're going to end up in a fight about this. I would say over the next five years is that people constantly, including the social justice warrior types, reserve the right to discriminate sexually, and that's why they're so concerned with such things as sexual harassment and sexual assault because they regard the right to discriminate sexually as a paramount right. But it's not self-evident from within the confines of their theory why that should be the case. Like, why should you be allowed to hurt someone's feelings? if they want to sleep with you and you don't want to sleep with them. I mean, you're, what are you going to do? You're going to base your criteria on health? Yes. On looks? Yes. On, on the admir admirability or the, uh, what, the admirable qualities of the person? Yeah. Usually on race, often on religion. You're going to give all that up? Yeah. As in not get Jared case, it's the utilities. It's kind of like a, a, a sexual potluck. So, you know, don't come empty-handed. <laughs> Sometimes if you don't have any don't choice. Don't trust the casserole. Take, well, you have to take what comes your way. But I'm, I'm talking <laughs> more fortunate than that. Yes. But so, so the first thing is is that, that we can't forget that not only is discrimination necessary, but that it's, it's one of the most basic rights, and it's associated with freedom of association. And the most... Uh, tangible example of freedom of association is freedom to choose your sexual partner. 
And so, so that the, the, the social justice warrior types are going to run afoul of that. They're, they already are in some sense because the transgender people are complaining that they're not given the same sexual preference as yeah. uh, oh, normative. Geez. Well, but, but it, like it goes along with the same logic. And, you know, in, in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, this is quite interesting, is that it was rude. It was a social faux pas to reject anyone's sexual advance and also to have any anything like a long-term relationship because what you were doing was discriminating against everyone else right. by preferring one partner and that is what you're doing like make no mistake about it that's the ultimate in discrimination is the ability to say no to a sexual partner so yeah does this I mean polygamy's coming back like it could, it could that, make a comeback is that a thing um I, I, well, to, to transition, because we were just talking about this sort of in Christian culture, uh, uh, a very common question we got, so a lot of people asked, and I think it's because we have quite a few uh, Christian uh, viewers, listeners, said, do you, because you've talked about and you've given lectures on, on Christianity, on sort of the Christ figurehead, um, I guess more as an archetype, people were saying, do you believe in God or a spiritual entity uh, in, in actuality, or do you believe more so in the, the archetype and the lessons to be well, for Christianity. I'm going to do what I usually do with that question, is I'm going to refer people to what I've been saying. And if, if you want an answer to that, I would say that okay. it would be worthwhile to watch the biblical lectures that I'm doing, because I'm trying to answer that question. It isn't a yes-no question, in, in, in my estimation, in any useful sense. Like, I, I don't want to weasel out of it. So I would say that the and this is the approach that I'm taking in these lectures, is the first thing is, is that I'm going to make as rational, historical, and biological a case possible for the, let's call it the construction and evolution of these religious ideas, and keep the metaphysical elements out of it, because I think it's cleaner that way. Okay. But having said that, um, having said that... Oh, I believe a significant other. Just missed a call from Stratford. Uh, okay, Tammy, will you call them and tell them that I'm going to be a, a bit late on that call? What do you mean? 15 minutes. 15 minutes? Yeah. All right, okay. I guess we just got a time time frame on here, so... We... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess we do. So, um... You said but, that being said after well, the... But yeah, yeah, okay, so having said that, having decided to take as rational an approach and, and as simple as a, an approach as possible, that's Occam's razor, right? Don't make your explanations any more complicated than they, than they need to be. Sure. I'm unwilling to dispense with the metaphysical element because there's lots of evidence that people are capable of experiencing um, revelatory emotions, let's say. And for example, they're reliably induced by certain kinds of psychedelics. Right, like you talked about that last time, yeah. Psilocybin mushrooms are the best example of that, I would say. And it's absolutely reliable. And you can induce those emotions with brain stimulation. And people who have epilepsy often have religious experiences prior to their epileptic seizures. And that was characteristic of Dostoevsky. And mystical experiences are reported from all over the world and have been since the beginning of time. And, and there's one of the things that I found out about the Christian ideas, for example, is that the deeper you dig into them, the more profound they become. And so, although I think it's safest and, and most careful to approach it from as rational a perspective as possible, I'm unwilling to dispense with the notion that there's a metaphysical element to existence that supersedes our, our comprehension. I believe that. And I've had experiences that have led me to believe that, that I... I'm, I'm not going to discuss, but sure. uh, it isn't something that you can casually eliminate. And, and there's more. Like, I do believe that one of the things that Christianity really emphasizes, and I think this is true of many well-developed religious traditions, is that there's something that that isn't 
simply material in the way that we understand material about consciousness. We don't understand consciousness. And the idea that consciousness is necessary for the world to exist is a perfectly reasonable metaphysical proposition because it's not easy to understand or to describe what being would be if there was no one conscious to experience it. Right. So if you look at a the, simple example, go back to a com, a came's razor. I had uh, someone, I think, a, I don't know if it was a theology professor, explain it to me, say, we're three dimensional beings. Assume God exists in 12 dimensions. You just said, that's just, we can't, it's three-dimensional beings, we can't fully comprehend it. We wouldn't be able to explain it. Um, that was the way I had it explained to me in college. So I, I just wanted, because I know, you know, uh, Gerald here uh, has, has studied quite extensively in theology and actually dabbled in teaching some apologetics, specifically as it relates to Islam. I yeah, believe yeah. I believe that Professor uh, Peterson is kind of saying what, what I've often said. Uh, I do believe, I, do, I don't hold that back. I say, if, yeah, I believe uh, in God. I believe the, the Judeo-Christian God, Christ, to be who he claims yeah. to be, but that's never been my argument. I try and argue from as much of a factual basis as possible, uh, particularly if you're looking to reach new people. Right. I believe that's that's what he's saying. But Gerald, did you have a? Well, yeah, I wanted to con one. I wanted to confirm is that kind of what you're saying, and 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 two, I, I think some of the complexities of the conversations that that you have and that we all kind of have can, I think, make some people go kind of like, what the hell did they just say? <laughs> so boiling it down, I think, is great. And, and a lot of times when we talk about those complexities, you're right, you can dive into these religions as much as you want, but there are kind of core doctrines, so to speak, to religions that, that can be fairly simple on the surface and obviously kind of go down beyond that. So when it comes to those core doctrines, you know, Christians believing in a God, believing in Jesus as his son, that he died, was buried, resurrected, for sins, created the relationship again. Those are the things. I think when people ask that question, like, where do you come down on that? I think the answer they're looking for, it may be a lot more complex than we have time for, but just generally speaking, yeah. Yeah, that seems like something I'm kind of in, in line with, or no, I kind of go this direction uh, yeah, for it. Yeah, I think so we've I think we got a lot of requests for that from people. And I know you give yeah. lectures, but sometimes well, people need it. In the, in the last lecture I gave, which was just last night, I, I, I started to talk about what I regard as the psychological significance of the idea that at the beginning of time, that God used the word, which is identified with Christ, to, to call order into existence out of chaos. Right. I was trying to understand and explain what that means. And mm -hmm. the, the truth of the matter is, is that it's a stunningly sophisticated idea. And the fact that it's a stunningly sophisticated idea means seems to indicate to me that there's something to it. It's, it's not some easy superstition, like the, right. the, the, the idea that the fact that John associated Christ with the Word of God at the beginning of time is a kind of conceptual uh, mystery. It really is a conceptual mystery. Why did that idea emerge? Well, it isn't just an arbitrary idea. It's a very, very deep idea. And it, it, it has to do, at least in part, with the idea that conscious use of language calls forth new types of being that and 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 I, I i we act as if that's true constantly like we act as if we can shape the world with our speech and 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 that the, the presupposition that we can do so i think is part of is part of what allowed people in the west to attribute to every human being some sort of divine equivalence with god because mm -hmm. there's an idea that you know, that we have a spark of the divine in us. And our law is predicated on that notion. And all of our customs are predicated on that notion. And that seems to have something to do with our capacity to use language in a creative and an intelligent way to shape the direction of the world. Yeah. 
And, and so I'm unwilling to just dispense with that idea metaphysically. I don't know what it means in the, in the total scheme of things, although one thing I have learned from studying mythology, and so that's the deep structure of narrative, is that in, in, in most mythological stories that have to do with the nature of being, there's always three elements. There's the formless chaos from which things emerge. There's a structure that gives rise to the order that emerges out of that chaos. And then there's an active principle that that structure uses to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's often represented as the father and the son. And it's always there. It's always there. And I'm not willing to, to dispense with that notion because it looks to me that sentient creatures like us do face the, the chaotic possibility of being. That's, that's the future. Mm -hmm. that we do make decisions about how it is that we're going to extract the world out of that potential, that we do use speech as the means by which that occurs, and that that does determine the direction of the unfolding of reality. And, and not to not cut exactly. you off, I, I know you have a, a timeline on there. I know where Gerald kind of comes from, I think, it, specifically is more sociology as it relates to other religions. And I think you have argued on the show before that it's the, the idea of Christ as the person he claimed he was is pretty simple yeah. and that there's a strong delineation between other uh, developed religions as, as you put it. And yeah. it would kind of be, the, the idea of Christ as compared to other mythologies would kind of be purposeless if it were just another one along the trail. Yeah, I mean, he made claims um, that have to be dealt with, I think is my point. Um, and, you know, we've been talking a lot about truth and, and I think we've kind of We've, we found ourselves a bit afloat in society because we, we really don't have, like, what is truth, that classical question, um, you know, and where, where does it come from? And if we don't have that mooring of truth uh, that has to come from somewhere, then we kind of float around and everything's okay. And so you kind of ask yourself, one, well, where does that truth come from? Is it the, the Judeo-Christian God? Um, is that where that comes from? And then talking about truth, what Christ claimed when he claimed to be the Son of God, you've always heard this, you know, three-part kind of argument. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He's a liar because he knew he wasn't, and he claimed to be. He's a lunatic because he wasn't, and he didn't know he wasn't, which yeah. would be kind of a weird way to exist. Um, or he's exactly who he said he was. And I think he did that on purpose. C.S. Lewis is great about talking about this and saying, look, he puts a question to every single one of us. And that's the question that all of us have to answer one way or the other. It's either the biggest waste of your time in all of history, or it's absolutely true, oh, and uh, and I think sorry, those I are the, the questions. Apology, don't, apology. Don't, don't don't step no, Hoffer was underneath my desk. I'm sorry, I just ruined the moment. Sorry, no, buddy. no, you're fine. But I think people would have you, you know. You probably would picked you... the most profound moment in the entire conversation to stomp on your dog. I, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's He's licking my foot again. But yeah. I do. I understand your question. So, um, um, Professor Peterson, what, what would what would you say to that? You know, someone kind of you know. I guess to sort of nutshell that, Christ said, I'm a sword. He comes to divide. It's, there is kind of that lineup on one side. I think that's the question that, you know, we got a lot on Twitter yeah. and on YouTube people asked. He didn't leave us an out, basically. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's an open question how much the world arranges itself in a different manner around someone who does everything they can to speak and live the truth. And I think that's the mystery that's encapsulated in the New Testament. It's like, what, what, how, how does, how does the, the full expression of the truth shape the direction of the cosmos? And one of the things that the New Testament claims is that it, it, it produces a radical transformation of the nature of reality. And that's a claim that I'm unwilling to dispense with. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean I understand it, and I, I don't understand it. I also do think that there's things in the New Testament, in the record that we have, that are very, very difficult to um, 
they're very difficult to understand and it's difficult to understand why they haven't been edited out like Christ's statement about being the way for example and that no one comes to the father except through him and that he was the truth embodied in flesh i mean those are very strange claims and they don't sound to me precisely like the ravings of a lunatic they're yeah. not they're they're of a different order yeah, now that doesn't point. necessarily mean that someone actually said them you know there's no proof of that in the way that we would normally consider proof but the the stories are such that that I'm, merely writing them off as superstitious is not useful. It yeah, doesn't right. help. I, I agree, and I think that, and we we do have to. I, I wanted to do this. Maybe we can do it next time. Someone did ask uh, Kienan Matern, "Can you, uh, Professor Peterson, can you do a big five personality analysis of Crowder and share it with the audience?" Maybe we can do that for <laughs> next time. We can do it somewhat off air, and you can uh, embarrass me. But I do. I agree with you there. I think we're 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 coming together with the, the, the. You can't prove every single word that was said that's written down from the Bible. It's not necessarily a transcription. But the totality of the historical context, right. um, the corroborations, the evidence outside of right. just the biblical timeline, at a certain point, I think, uh, like Professor Peterson is, is saying, you have to determine what you believe the, the truth to be. And that is one that not anyone has the answer. There's a certain element of faith there. Yeah, and I think historically, if, as you look at we how just we wrap judge this up nicely. Books, Do not try and open right. this back up. I was just going to say you're right. I was going to say. <laughs> well, just there's, one say other thing, there's one other thing to consider, too, with regards to belief. You know, I mean, belief isn't necessarily allegiance to a set of facts. It, sure. And it, it might even be more importantly in relationship to Christian belief that it's the decision about how to act. Yeah. And there's an idea, and this is, I think, most well-developed in Orthodox Christianity, is that your moral duty is to act out the archetypal pattern of Christ in your own life. And what that essentially means is that to tell the truth in, in the manner that, 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 in, in the manner that suits and fits you best, your own personal truth, and then pay the price for that in your life, and that that's the appropriate way to be. And so that's, that's in some sense a different definition of belief, and I think it's a better one, because I don't think that what people say they believe is the best guide to what they believe. I right. think the way they act is the best guide to the way they believe. And so then that would, say, that would mean that to have faith in Christ, if you considered him the archetypal perfect human being, and perhaps nothing else, but let's just say, I mean, that's enough, right? That's a pretty good start. Right. That that your moral duty would be to attempt to duplicate that in the confines of your own life. Yeah. And that's the actual basis of your belief. And that seems to me to be a perfectly reasonable proposition. And it also doesn't introduce these other ideas that are associated in some sense more with the domain of something like objective fact. It isn't clear to me that we're exactly in the domain of objective fact. Although I know that's a mess, I know it's a mess. But no, 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 it's not. And I understand. I, I hate because I know you have to go. I saw, I saw the missus tell you you had 15 minutes left. Um, and I think that is true. You know, you see, talk about mimicking the archetype, and that's what we've talked about. That's why there's, I believe, there's such a problem with Islam because of Muhammad and the way that he acted is very different. If everyone acted like Christ, be a little bit weird. You might be like, hey, the guy's overly friendly. Muhammad, everyone would be jailed. And we can talk about that uh, next time you come on. Do you think you can do the big five personality analysis uh, next time? We can share it with the audience. Well, I can tell you a little bit about your personality. Uh, I mean, you're 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 a pretty agreeable person. Um, you know, you like people and you're friendly. You're very very extroverted, right? You're off the charts extroverted. You're pretty friendly? high openness. Yeah, you may have noticed that. <laughs> Extrovert. Um, my suspicions is that your conscientiousness is probably somewhere in the medium range because you wouldn't be a comedian if you were highly conscientious. It's just not. It's just not something like to be an entertainer isn't something that someone who's really conscientious can be because the lifestyle is too 
unstructured. Mm. And so, um, so that's, and in terms of negative emotion, I would suspect probably higher than average. That's neuroticism. I would suspect probably higher than average, but but certainly off the charts for There you go. He already put me on the couch. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> well, let's do this. We'll do it more in depth next time because I'm, I'm interested uh, whenever I take yeah, these little... Yeah, we could take a personality test and we could go through it. Okay, that one. sounds like fun. And the audience will love to see that me embarrassed. Scary. 20% discount if you enter in Crowder at selfauthoring.com, right, Professor Peterson? Yes, that's right, yes. Not mm -hmm. .ca, not like the rest of those Canadians. He's going against nope. the grain. Uh, there you go. Professor <laughs> Peterson, thank you so much for taking the time, sir. This has been wonderful. And uh, hopefully people have... have, have have learned some truth here today. Right. That is right. And uh, here's some music playing. We will see you tomorrow. For those who are watching, Tommy Loren tomorrow. Send your questions out there on YouTube. Uh, and we'll be talking about Donald Trump's uh, budget proposal regarding education. That's been really controversial. See you then. Yeah.